Good morning. It's good to see you again. I'm coming to you live, well, live-ish, from my living room. This is week 21 of the pandemic, if you can believe this. This is the 21st video I've shot from my house to you. Um, this is my living room. I'm sure there are cooler places. We probably could have built a studio in the amount of time that we've had to do these videos, but I'm not mad that I get to do it from this living room, and this is why. Can't see it because of the where the camera is, but six feet over in that direction is a couch. And that's where Legacy Church started. Legacy Church started with two couples in missional community number one. Um, and God has been very kind and generous and thoughtful for us over the years because now that one missional community has turned into over 12 represented by two churches in this city. Also, it's important to know that there's nothing special about me or about Kevin when we started those missional communities with our brides. Nothing special at all. We just had a heart for the city. We made a ton of mistakes as we figured out how to invite our neighbors into a setting where we can do life very tightly with them, show them what the gospel looked like through the word, and then watch that group grow and grow and grow as we continually reach the city until it had to become two and then three and then 10 groups. And so I'm telling you all this little thumbnail history bit about Legacy Church because many of you are in a missional community now. Some of you aren't, right? You've been meaning to get around to it or you've thought about it or maybe you've been in something like that in the past. But you've been, you're in a missional community. I just want to, I want to encourage you that God can do amazing things in the context of a living room environment with families that really love each other, love Christ, and love their city. Um, our values are gospel, community, and mission. All three of those values expressed in how we relate to each other in our missional community. So just want to encourage you, if you're in one, that you're, you are really in a beautiful place right now. You are probably doing life huddled tightly with four or five or seven other family units. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. And we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks how you can maybe turn this missional community into less of a huddle in a bunker and more of a, a gospel explosion and a gospel extension to the city where you can be on mission to your neighbors, even in something as complicated as a pandemic. Um, and then if you're not in a missional community, just want to encourage you to find one. There is real life to be had when you are walking alongside other families in a little bit of a tighter proximity. Um, you can find a list of our missional communities on our website. They're called Com Groups, Communities on Mission. You can just scroll down the front of our front page and it will lead you on how you can find how to be involved with a Com group. Um, but anyway, all of that from the fact that I'm in a living room, <laughs> I couldn't resist. If you have a Bible or you have a, de a device that you're using, turn to Philippians 4. We are going to finish this letter today. Philippians 4, we'll probably start around verse 11. If you're a Christian, you probably know this. Before Christ changes the human heart, the human heart has money as its biggest savior. Money, this was the case for me before Jesus found me, money was what I worshipped, was my savior gave me comfort. Money for those without Christ is a little bit of a life raft, um, keeping us from dangerous waters, from stormy waters. And the bigger our life raft is, the safer we are, the more it is saving us or making us more comfortable. 
After Christ changes a heart, though, things change. Jesus himself replaces money as that life raft, as that comfort, as that savior. But even after Jesus, we still have a question, a prevailing question that is, will I have everything I need? Will I have enough? Will I have everything I need? And, and now Paul's going to speak to that question today, but never has that question been more relevant than it is today. And for most of us, having enough would be enough, right? If we just had enough money to pay the bills, buy groceries, if we just had enough to sock a little bit away in retirement, pay the house down a little bit, if we just had enough to maybe contribute a meager amount to the kids to help them get started in this thing called life. Some of these things that I just listed would fall in that category that we would call needs. These are needs, right? House over our head, food on the table. There is another category of wants. Now, we can usually tell the difference between those two categories, right? Wants is like braces for the kids. That's a want. Annual vacation, that's a want. Private school would be a want. Nicer cars instead of, you know, kind of broken down cars. That would be, I tell you, having a Spotify account with no commercials, that's a want, right? Having uh, AirPods, not the knockoff AirPods, but the real AirPods, you know? Having a closet full of clothes that match the decade that we happen to be living in, these are wants. And you and I can usually look at the needs in our life and the wants in our life and tell the difference. There's a difference. There's a difference. And I think pandemic living, pandemic 101, has us asking the question, will we have everything that we need? Will God supply us in everything that we need? Will he attend to that category? Because we're living in a scary time where the stock market is erratic and when the days it's not erratic, it's just depressing. We're living in a place, in a state of history where the government is just sending us money because we don't have enough. Unemployment numbers, they're not budging very much. Bankruptcies are sky high right now. So 2020 will show us a few things. It will show us how fragile our economy is, but not just the broad economy, but also our personal economy, our little micro economies. I think as a missionary, and if you're a Christian and you're watching this right now, you are a missionary. Right? That's a different sermon. I'm going to avoid talking to that right now. But you're a missionary inside of a city that largely has not had money replaced by Christ yet as the Savior and the Comforter in the middle of their lives. Money is still the thing that they need to save them. Money is still the thing that is going to bring them comfort. So their big prevailing question is still, will I have everything I need? And that's an open-ended question for them, and it's one that brings fear. They're fearful. Once again, our Bible is relevant and applicable. It has the most timely word on a pandemic that has ever been written. Your Bible does. We're finishing this letter to the Philippian church today. And just, again, the backstory, and we looked at it briefly last week is that this church that loved Paul sent Paul money, but probably money, supplies. We'll say supplies, right? I don't know what that looked like. It could have been energy bars, <laughs> bottles of water, but likely it was money. And they sent it with this guy named Epaphroditus. And this whole letter was sent back with Epaphroditus to this church that he loved and largely has a lot of thank you in it. It's not a thank you note, but it has a lot of thank you in it. 
And here he's bringing this letter to a close. He's ending it by answering the question we all have today, which is, will we have enough? Will all of our needs be cared for? Let's look at it. We'll jump in in verse 11. I think that's probably the best place to jump in. This is the word of the Lord for you and me today. Jesus is incredibly crystal clear in this very passage, and we will see him more clearly and the beautiful thing God has done for us. He says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Okay. It's important to be reminded that this church, Philippi, they were not just passengers in watching gospel expansion in Macedonia. They were partners. They were partakers in Paul's work since the very early days, what he calls the beginning of the gospel. He doesn't mean the gospel story. He means gospel expansion, the very beginning of the church plant. They were on board from day one. Lydia, the garment merchant that he found by the river, who God opened up the eyes of her heart, the, the jailer and his family, very likely the young woman that was demon-possessed, them, all of their friends, and the people that were in this beautiful church would take up a collection. And they would send it to Paul, and they would take care of him, and they would see to his needs that he could continue to plant churches that would plant churches that would plant churches. And Philippi was unique in that it stood alone in this regard. He even says, out of all the churches in Macedonia, you guys alone were the anchor. Y'all were the solid partaker and partner. And there were other churches. Thessalonica was in this region. Okay? Berea was in this region. But these guys, these guys were exemplary in their giving. They were exemplary in their partnership and in their partaking. In fact, they were so good at this that Paul, when speaking to another church, Corinth, about collecting a gift that they had been talking about getting ready, he mentions them, right? So they've been mentioned in 2 Corinthians 8, stay where you're at, but he says this, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, now he's talking about Philippi, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Okay. I consider this to be a very high mark for a church, for a church. I think a church, any church 
will be most helpful to the city when it is partnered at the expansion of the gospel. When a church is involved in starting new works that will start new works that will start new works, that is the most helpful a church can be. This is why at Legacy, we've always resolved to give 10% of every single dollar just to church planting alone, that, just that small category of gospel expansion. There are other ways to expand the gospel, but we believe new churches are the fastest way to do it. So since day one, we've always had 10% of every single dollar going into church planting with a specific eye to our area alone. And by God's grace, we're going to keep doing it and we'll even increase it over time. But last week, we saw Paul speak about how he did not need this money for, for any happiness, for joy to be true in him, for him to have peace, for him to be content. He did cash the checks, right? It was helpful. It was a fragrant offering before the Lord. It was an acceptable gift. I mean, he put the clothes on, he ate the food, he took the supplies. But no matter the supply, whether it was sent or not sent, he says his satisfaction was secure. It would not buckle. It was unwavering. That's the overarching theme of this whole last chapter. In fact, what excites Paul more than anything else is not just that he was taken care of by such a gift. It was just that they would grow by virtue of this gift, right? This partnership had benefits of helping Paul, had even bigger benefits of growing them, of showing fruit in their lives. This is what we're going to learn as we go on in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek that fruit that increases to your credit. What is he talking about? He goes on to say, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Okay, so we see a couple things in this last little bit of the passage. One, there is a credit that increases to us whenever we give sacrificially to the needs of others. That's a truth. That's a truth. The second thing is, our gift when we give is pleasing to God. It's like a fragrant offering before the Lord. That's true, right? Another thing that we learn is our needs will always be supplied by the riches in Christ. Okay? Here's what I know. We semi-believe number one and number two. We totally don't believe number three. We don't. We doubt number three is really true for us. I mean, what we somewhat believe that when we invest our treasures into someone or something like a church or a ministry that's in need, that we might benefit in some way. But even people who are far from Jesus believe that, right? I'll write a check to the Red Cross. I'll write a check to the Girl Scouts, to needy kids in some other country, even to a church, even to a church plant. I'll write a check but it's always with view of hopefully making God's view towards us change a little bit. Maybe it turns his frown upside down when God looks at us. The basic idea is if I give what I have, God will give me what I want. If I give what I have, God will give me what I want. But that's a contractual arrangement we're trying to build before us and God that we can maybe hope to put him in debt to us to give us good things, to be good to us and be sweet to us because we are giving to something that he is excited about, right? Something that he is jazzed about 
So we're not really giving to God at all, are we? We're the church or even the Girl Scout. We are, but we're mostly giving to ourselves. It's an investment. We're looking for a return on that investment. Also, supplying the needs of others who are in need by giving our deep treasures, it can feel cleansing, like a little bit of a self-atonement. Like we've done some things wrong. We've had a month or two or a decade of bad behavior, poor performance. So we try to take the scale and slip it to the other end by giving a big gift. Maybe we can change God's opinion of us because we're poor in this area, but we're great when it comes to the checkbook. But this too is a contractual arrangement, isn't it? It's the same kind. We want God to enter into a contract with us to where if we give what we have, he'll give us what we want. Whether it's cleanliness of the soul or more money. Friends, this is a pagan view of God. It's a pagan view of money. It's not accurate in the Bible. It's a radical misunderstanding of God, his character, his gospel. Some of you are giving with this lingering in the back of your mind. Some of you, when you write a check or you click pay or you do something like that, you give charitably in some direction, there is a piece of you that hopes that God will protect all of your finances that you're keeping. There's a piece of you that might hope that you will get more return on this investment because you're being so benevolent. You need to stop and consider what is behind your giving. It is just as important as what you were giving. Okay? When Paul says that there is fruit that increases to their credit, he's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about cleaning the soul, that they would be right with God. There is only one gift, one offering, one sacrifice that does that, and that is the person of Jesus. It's the life, death, and life of Jesus that accomplishes what it takes to make our soul clean. Now, if we had more time, I'd love to go into how our investments, financial investments, um, into needy things, needy people, the saints, church planting, how God sees that, how God measures that in the end of all ends when he's measuring everything that we say, think, and do. But if I, I just want to drill in today on how we increase today, today, by how we give. And today we grow just like they would when we give by becoming more satisfied with God, by having our joy and our contentedness in Jesus grow while the grip of money on our life starts to shrink and release. That's, that's an increase. Because listen, you've been around people, I've been around people who have taken money and they've ensconced it in the middle of their heart, in the middle of their universe. And so they're miserable because they make all of their decisions based on what it does to their bottom line. Right? There's no increase of peace in their life, even if they have more money. It doesn't increase any peace. They just have more money to be anxious about, angry about. No increase in joy because there's always something to threaten it. The fruits of the Spirit will be missing in a person like this because they're chasing after so much and they just don't get anything in return. Listen, money can do some wonderful things, right? It's awesome to have a lot of money, but money makes a horrible Jesus. <laughs> makes a horrible life raft. Money's not going to save you. Money's not going to make you happy. Money's not going to make you comfortable, right? The Philippian church, while impoverished, trusted a wealthy God who would in fact impoverish himself to make us wealthy. And what they would do as a response to this is they would give away 
what the world says that is worth worshiping. You're giving away money, that's what I worship. But they didn't worship money. And so they gave it away freely and they increased abundantly. You see, it's the third truth that we can't bring ourselves to believe. It's the third truth that God will supply every need of ours according to the riches that are in Christ Jesus. I mean, as I read that, are you skeptical? Just honestly, haven't you felt like many of your needs have not been supplied? Haven't you been in tough spots where you needed God to come through and he just did not come through? He wasn't there. You had a need and he just let it slip right by. I mean, you can bring your honesty to passages like this because the Bible was written for skeptical hearts, if any, right? In fact, if you want a fulfilled, authentic, genuine life with Christ, step one is admit where you feel like the Bible is missing your experience, missing what you feel to be true. Don't pretend that your doubts aren't doubts. It's weird. If you find yourself making excuses for God, making excuses for the things that you read in this Bible, you're not being authentic. You're not being honest. You'll never be happy that way. I think now is a great time to wrestle this out in this passage and a couple others that it touches. This idea that God will meet all of our needs. All of them. I mean, because there's other passages too. It's not just that one, right? You trip on them from time to time when you're reading through the Bible. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Except for sometimes we feel want, right? Psalm 34, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Okay, do you really believe that? Or have you lacked what you would call good things? Or Psalm 84, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Okay, but what about your missing money? What about your missing paycheck? Your missing job? Your missing health? You're missing friends, you're missing hopes, you're missing future, you're missing everything. What about when you needed God to supply a need and he did not? What do you do with passages like this? You see, this passage in Philippians, it finds us in a place where if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, we're asking the question or maybe making the statement, God, I just don't believe you. God, I just don't believe you. I don't trust that you're always going to meet my needs because I've had a few and you weren't there. I think it's finding us, if we let it, finds us in an honest predicament, a real dilemma that there's really no getting around. If we're honest, if we're honest Bible readers, how do we get around this dilemma? In fact, I only see a few directions, a few places we can go when our needs are not met. One, we just admit that God's a liar, okay? God's a liar. This book is full of lies. It's a book of mythology. You're on your own, right? And listen, if you believe that and you're watching this, you're not alone, man. I mean, you've got billions that are with you. There's billions, B, in that camp. The second direction we can go is that God is waiting on you. God's waiting on you if you really want your needs and wants met. You're just right now not impressive enough, right? You've got some growing to do. You wouldn't be in a jam if you were better, just at everything. 
your needs would be met if you were a better version of yourself. You're 2.0 right now, but if you were 6.0, you wouldn't have the needs that you have. You wouldn't have the wants that you have. And if this is you, and some of that bad theology is rattling around, you also are not alone. There's millions of people that agree with you. Millions, right? You see, this is the lie that God's promises are true, but only for better people than you, right? For you, you've got some growing to do. You've got to believe differently and have a different kind of faith. You have to trust. You have to say things differently, do things differently. This is part of what we as a church have called the prosperity message. We've literally declared war on the prosperity message by planting a church in Knoxville, Tennessee. If you're not familiar with what the prosperity message is, it's very basic. If you do certain things for God, he will do certain things for you. But if you misbehave, if you misperform, if you don't say things correctly, if you don't do things perfectly, he'll leave you. He'll abandon you, and it will be your fault. That You could have all the friends and wealth and comfort in this world that this world has to offer, but if you don't have it, that's on you. That's on you. You're just not doing enough. You're not doing enough correctly. God will grant you treasures if you show yourself pleasing, if you show yourself acceptable. That's the prosperity message. You know, for about 10 years, I pastored and I led and I was in the prosperity church that believed this, that walked under this every day. And one of the questions that would always kind of rise to the top was, well, then what about cases like Paul sitting here in prison alone? He's, he's, he's living off of the, the benevolence of others to clothe himself, to eat. And this is what I would hear. I would hear this from teachers, pastors, scholars, preachers, that Paul must have been in some sort of disobedience. Paul must have been unimpressive. He had a lot of growing to do because he did have pain and he did have lack and he did have loss. That's on Paul. He didn't believe enough. He didn't do enough. Had he done more, he would have had better friends, more health, more provision. I don't think a lot of people would say that out loud the more they know Paul, but it turns out a lot of people do believe the tenets of that kind of theology. About 15 years ago, quite a while back, Time Magazine did a survey with Western evangelicals here in the United States. And what they found out is one-third of evangelicals, one out of three, believe that if you give money to the church or give money to God, God will bless you with more money. One out of three believed in this contractual arrangement that goes against the grain of the gospel. Two out of three believe that God wants everybody to be prosperous. That that's God's ultimate care and desire, is that you would be prosperous. Right? But then what do you do with Paul? <laughs> I mean, Paul would disagree with something like that. You see, when God becomes a code to be cracked in order to make our lives beautiful here in this world, all it's going to show us is that the most important thing to you and me is not God at all, but it's ourselves and the things of this world. So we have a third option. Either God is a liar, like we said, God is waiting on us to improve, which would be a prosperity message, or three, God is being honest here. And truly, he will supply whatever we truly need. But what does it mean when it says need. Can we just 
drill into that word a little bit, right? Because this whole letter, Paul has been talking about how he doesn't need money, doesn't need food, doesn't need clothing, doesn't need friends, doesn't need freedom. He has total satisfaction and joy in God in all circumstances. It was the passage we let off with. I think what happens is we read this passage and we inadvertently place the word need, but what we really mean to say is want. We replace those words in our mind. So we read this passage to say, God will give you everything you want according to his riches. God will give you everything that you want according to his riches. Hey, I needed that job. When really, it's you wanted that job. Hey, I needed that sleep. You wanted that sleep. Hey, God, I needed that health. I needed this house. I needed that opportunity. But really what we're saying is we wanted those things. Because here's the truth. Many of us will go without supply in the departments of sleep and health and friends and finances. And we'll see some things that we desperately are convinced we need to function well. And God's not going to bring it to us. He's not going to supply those because they're not needs. They're very good wants. They're good wants. Now listen, this might shatter your view of God a bit, okay? So we're going to interact with this idea, and we're going to use another passage to do it, and it's going to be in Hebrews 11. I want you to stay where you're at. We're going to splash this up on the screen. Hebrews 11 is a very, very valuable passage for those of you who are young in the Lord and you're wanting to learn more about this type of a topic, right in the latter part of the chapter, it talks about how saints lived and how some had some very miraculous things happen to them and some had the, the blessings of God on their life. But then it pivots in verse 35 and says, women received back their dead from, by resurrection. But then, then he turns, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, and flogging, and even chains, and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Okay, none of these God-fearing people, none of these saints received what you and I would look at and say, that's a need. Like, they need a home. They need clothes. They need safety. They all found moments where God could have delivered them, but just didn't. They had what was a felt need, and God did not supply it. It's interesting, right? It, it still happens. There's Christians all over the globe today that go without Food. They die of starvation. They die of exposure. They die of torture. They die of these things. Did God abandon them? I mean, it doesn't look good, right? This, this looks bad. Even Paul himself, finally, eventually, one of these days, had his moment under the edge of a sword. His head came right off. Where was God then? Paul had a very big need. It was to not die. And God said, no, today's the day for you. Today you leave this world. And today you join me in a different one. It was a need. And God said no. God said no. You see, sometimes God says to even our best wants, our most noble wants, no. No. 
And even in those moments, God is thoughtful for us and kind and generous and beautiful and giving, magnanimous, even in those moments. Even when God says no to what you and I look at and feel like we must have, God is in that moment shaping you and I to have this deeper passion, hunger in the treasure and the supply that is Jesus himself. More God. You see, our deepest need is not money. Our deepest need isn't even health. Our deepest need isn't even life itself. It's more God. It's more God. Which this passage puts a little bit of texture on what we read three chapters earlier, same letter, where, where Paul says to live is Christ, but to die is gain. You obviously see the most important thing to him and the most important thing to this Philippian church was not more stuff, more opportunities, more employment, more houses, more, more anything. It was more God. More God is the increase in their life. For the person who has encountered a living God, food, even life itself, becomes last place. It's hard for us to imagine, right? Some of us are having a hard time with a passage like this, but for the person who is satisfied and joyful in God, death does not rattle them. The prospect of losing it all doesn't really dent their sense of satisfaction. They don't limp from it. Paul says here, God will supply all of your needs to be content, to be joyful, to be satisfied in the Lord. That's the need that he is going to supply at all times. Any circumstance that comes your way, checks in the mail, checks not in the mail. Pain, no pain. COVID, no COVID. Friends, no friends. Depression, no depression. In any and every circumstance, God will bring us as the ultimate treasure himself. And the best thing that we can have is more of him. You can be destitute and abounding with joy. You can be overcome, overpowered, oppressed, running for your life, hungry, sick, and still abounding at the same time. Listen, feel free to blow up my inbox with all these things that God is seemingly failing you in right now, not meeting. But I'm just going to point you to Paul in a prison. I'm just going to show you Christ on a cross. I'm just going to read to you these saints in Hebrews 11. I'm just going to tell you multiple millions of other stories where people were satisfied and joyful in Christ, even in great lack, even in death itself, even in death. Because the big promise that you and I have is that God will supply all of our needs in Christ. He will supply all of our deepest needs by giving us himself. And this is far better than you'll always have health, wealth, and friends. It's far better than that. We're promised every single spiritual blessing and treasure that comes in Christ Jesus. That's what we see in Ephesians 1. I mean, stay where you're at, but this is what Paul says to a different church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This, this is what Paul is satisfied with beyond all things. Jesus and all the spiritual blessings and treasures that come with having more Jesus, having more God himself. Our biggest need is supplied in Christ. And not just Christ, but you probably caught it in our passage today. Christ who is a fragrant blessing, 
a fragrant sacrifice, an aroma before the Lord. You see, that is what Paul is speaking about whenever he says that their gift to him is a fragrant offering. He is giving us a clue to the fact that that gift to him is in the shape of the gospel itself, right? Jesus himself is the ultimate fragrant offering on the ultimate altar of the cross that is the ultimate acceptable sacrifice, the one that is truly pleasing to the Father. See, Jesus intercedes for you and me by pouring his own life out to be this acceptable offering. You only see those phrases one other time in the New Testament. It's Paul talking to another church. In Ephesians, he says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The only other times you see this in the Bible are going to be in the Old Testament, which is where the phraseology comes from, right? Where priests would come and intercede for the people by putting an incense or some sort of a uh, something on a coal that would, that would let out an aroma and a fragrant offering that would signify a sacrifice that God had pleasure in, a worthy sacrifice. But the gospel on this side of the cross, we can look and see that Jesus is the true and better fragrant offering on the altar of the cross, the only acceptable sacrifice where Jesus himself was a better priest, not like the priest that came before and used incense, but he was the priest and the sacrifice, the last priest and the last sacrifice to intercede for you and for me. This supply to Paul, the money, the encouragement, the supplies, Epaphroditus is in the image and in the shape of the gospel itself. And just like the Philippian church, when you and me, when we look and we search and we beg and we sacrificially give according to our means or like the Philippians, beyond our means to the deep needs of the saints and to gospel expansion, it looks like the gospel. It smells like the better fragrant offering especially when we are trusting in the Lord the whole time that he ultimately was going to meet our deepest needs, not this thing that we're giving away. But friends, when we refuse to partner financially or share a financial burden or partner with a church or a ministry or the saints who are in need, it shows that we have failed to understand the gospel at its very core. We have failed to do that. So as we end this, the big application question is, how do we supply others in need in a day of COVID-19 when we feel like our paychecks are coming up short and we have big needs ourselves? I mean, God has us in the same place as the Philippians, a people faced with difficulties, who are limited in their resources, faced with the very satisfaction and where it comes from, faced with where their peace really comes from, faced with a God who will never refuse to give more of himself. Never. But ask yourself, Christian, do you refuse to invest for fear that you won't have what you really want? Ask yourself the real, I mean, real talk. Ask yourself the question, do you refuse to invest because more God is not enough? More God's not enough. You need other things and God, or maybe just other things. Because I'm going to tell you the answer is not more money. The answer to your dissatisfaction is not more money, but more of God himself. More money is not going to build any satisfaction. Listen, I, I know I'm a pastor talking about money, so got that going for me. But I am going to agree with Paul right now. I, this is not some ploy to get you to write a check to Legacy Church. Legacy Church is going to be fine. I want this for your growth. 
for your growth. I want you to release your grip on money so it releases its grip on you, that there would be an increase for you as you see and get and grasp more God and all the treasures and all of the blessings that come with Christ. I want you to enjoy God. Your need for more satisfaction is never going to exhaust him. Meaning, you'll never get to a place where you need more God and God has lack. He has nothing left to give. That's never going to happen. God will always have access to what we need in giving us more of himself. So listen, if you're a Christian today, ask yourself the big diagnostic question. If you could have more money or more God, which are you convinced is going to bring you more satisfaction? More money or more God? Because if money is still your life raft, you have struggled to grasp the gospel. Not just the gospel that saves, but the gospel that sustains and builds satisfaction in our daily lives. The good news of God for you and for me through the person of Christ who came and lived and died and lived again as God's favor shines on us totally despite us. Second question, are you convinced that God is better than health friends and money, even life itself? If not, if you're struggling with these questions, ask the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see, to, to allow you to behold God for who he is. Because once you stretch, once your dimensions of Jesus and the gospel stretch, you're not going back to the same shape. I, I'm reminded of Job in the very end of his story in the Old Testament. You could look it up yourself where he is approaching God and saying, I used to hear about you, but now I see you. Now I know. He was stretched. He's not going to go back to the same shape. You can ask the Holy Spirit to do the same thing for you. Ask God to send a spirit to show you who Christ is. That's what the Holy Spirit enjoys doing. That you would have more of a passion and fascination. That you would become enticed and intoxicated in the person of Christ. There's just so much to repent for. To turn from abusing this gift of money. That we're here to steward for the grace and for the good of others. Especially those in need. Yet we cling to. And we worship as our life draft, keeping us from the storms of life. And I know that not everybody is watching this as a Christian. I know some of you are skeptics and you struggle with passages like this or the idea that God might not meet what you feel like is a need because it's really a want. And it really has nothing to do with him, but everything to do with you. Is it so hard for you to believe that the God of the cosmos that created all good things for his good pleasure and for your good, is it so hard to believe that he would want you to have the greatest good of all? It's himself. God giving you himself is the greatest good you could ever have. It's the greatest thing you could ever have given to you, which is Paul is so adamant about, I'm fine living here. I'm just going to keep worshiping Jesus. I'm fine, but I'm fine going away too because the one thing that I truly treasure will be given to me in totality. Listen, the best you can possibly have is him. Not money, not health, not friends, not freedom, not opportunities. It's more of God. Your best life now is one where Jesus is your fragrant offering, where he intercedes for you as priest and a sacrifice, that God would look at such a sacrifice for you and say, I am pleased by that. It's fragrant. It smells good to me. 
and that you are brought into a royal family with a new bloodline in you. That is the best life for you now. And you increasingly, from this point on, get more and more and more God as you grow to enjoy him more and more. That's my prayer for you today. That's my prayer. So listen, this is all I want to do and travel through this book. It's been, a, it's been a good book. Philippians has been a fantastic read for our church. But it's been great leading us through a season like this. I'm looking forward to next week as we start a new direction that I think is going to be just as helpful. Um, but I just want you to know how much I'm praying for you and how much I think of you and how much I'm thankful for you as I think and pray for you. If you need anything at all, please contact us. Wear us out. Don't, don't be afraid to let us know how we can be helpful for you as a leadership team and as a church. But until then, I love you a bunch, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.